Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Marina Fogel welcome you to The Parenthood, the podcast where we discuss all things parenting. Today's topic is still a little bit of a taboo for many parents. Talking to your children about sex is something that a lot of us parents squirm at the thought of. But in today's culture, sex in all its forms is more prevalent and accessible to children than it ever has been, which means that our communication around it is more important than ever. I'm here with uh, Dr. Kiara Hunt. Kiara, do you find that parents are finding this conversation easy to have or they're not having it or they're waiting later or maybe they're having this conversation earlier? I think parents in general are getting better than they were perhaps a generation ago about being open and communicative about sex with their children. But it's still very common that I will have a teenager in my surgery sent in by their parents to discuss contraception because the parents have suddenly realised that they might be sexually active. And actually that child has never had a conversation with a sensible adult about what sex is and the safeties around it. They might have had some, some lessons in school, but not necessarily an opportunity to to ask the questions that they that they don't know the answer to, which might be a bit silly, that they don't want to ask in, in a classroom. So yes, it's definitely something I see quite a lot in the surgery. So with us today, we've got Emma Gledhill. She's an educational speaker, coach and mentor who specialises in child and adolescent development, focusing on the emotional dimensions of teaching, learning and parenting. Emma, thanks for coming to talk to us today. Just looking at your bug, you were initially a deputy head teacher and then you went on to focus more on the academic, sort of observing children in a psychoanalytical way way um, and understanding the latest thinking in child development research as well as development of personality. I'm curious because I think that traditionally education was all about learning facts, learning things that you could recite, your times tables. And I think we're now slowly understanding the importance of sparking independent thought in children, really as young as reception. How important is communication in those early years? And, And do you think we're getting it right as a society? I think sometimes we need to concentrate on having dialogue. Dialogue is what helps independent thinking. So we're not giving them the answers. Do you know, there's the whole internet out there where they can download whatever they want. But with us as parents, we are their resource, or that's what we might want for them. That on sensitive, difficult, emotional topics, or just embarrassing topics, we want them to be able to come to us and ask the unaskable that they can't ask in school in front of their friends. We want to be able to listen to them and encourage them to speak to 
what's on their mind, what they're curious about, what they'd like to know, what they suspect, what they fear, and to do that with us as attuned adults who care about them. And what's the best way to allow them to do that? Well, I think sometimes when they ask us questions that are a bit sensitive or maybe a bit embarrassing, we might giggle, you know. So particularly if our young child asks us something about sex and sexuality, we can quite easily find it quite funny. And, you know, in my circle of friends, you know, we've all got our stories to share. And Um, then they probably overhear us sharing these stories. Absolutely. And you think they're playing their Lego in the corner, but they're not. They're listening to every word that you're saying. And then that signals to them that we're ridiculing them. Absolutely. Or or that there's something shameful or silly around this subject or that it is something you can easily be laughed at. So really, that kind of sense of being open to their curiosity and to be, you know, the responsible custodian of the values surrounding difficult topics. So if they if they want to ask about their body, the last thing I think any parent wants to do is to, without realising it, collude with a culture that can quite easily make us feel ashamed that our bodies are not perfect, that do not match up with unrealistic standards of excellence in the airbrushed images of bodies, sexualized bodies that we see. It is so easy in this world to feel that, you know, contrary to the L'Oreal advert, we are not worth it. So in a way, I think our ability to be sensitive to their questions about their bodies, to be sensitive to their questions about relationships, about love, about intimacy, and yes, also about sex. These are really important issues so that, you know, we're not inadvertently shutting them down or giving the impression that what they're asking about is something that's just too embarrassing or too difficult. And that can start really from quite a young age. You, you know, little two-year-olds putting their hands down their pants or, or girls with their car seats rubbing themselves and parents get very upset and very, uh, to stop that, you know, take, take your hands out of there. And, and it sends the wrong message to children. How would you advise parents to cope with situations like that? I think first and foremost, we've got to be realistic. Our children are sexual beings and that's not necessarily a very comfortable thing to say and you know back in the day Freud was absolutely hated and vilified for engaging with this idea of young children and sexuality but you only have to be around a very young child for a short amount of time and be observant to see that they're interested in their bodies and that they are also learning that their bodies are a source of pleasure whether that's farting or pooing or also the idea idea that when we touch ourselves in certain places it can be pleasurable and comforting as well but of course we need to enable them to understand that there are boundaries around that and they also need to understand in a realistic way that they can't go around touching themselves in public places but the delicate balancing act the real tightrope wire is the sense that our embarrassment doesn't inadvertently overlay a sense of shame about this so we need to find our sort of sense of calm to explain to them just to to sort of register yeah you know our bodies are these amazing things look at the miracle you know look you did a poo in the potty hooray um that our bodies are you know nothing short of miraculous really um and we should value that but 
we also need to respect that our bodies, parts of our bodies are private and, you know, we need to be the bosses of our bodies. We need to understand what is appropriate and inappropriate to celebrate in private and how we act when we're among other people. And obviously you, you kind of remi- have to keep on reminding, as with everything with children, whether it's table manners or whatever, you say it once and that's not enough, you know, that you have to just presumably just keep on reiterating that it's fine, you know, what you're enjoying doing right there, but not in front of all your friends at school or not in in a sort of public sphere. Mm, absolutely. You know, as a teacher practitioner, we've been taught various things about the psychology of how you learn and basically one conversation does not cut it you might think you've had the conversation you've explained it superbly well and you know what you probably did as well but it's going to take at least seven goes so you know sometimes I think we've got to think about what our modeling was from our parents you know maybe our parents did a good job but back in the day it was that idea of having the birds and the bees talk Mm. And what sort of talk was it? How open was it? And I think as parents now, we need to sort of tear up the old order of how sex education worked and think about the new regime we have, which is that children are hitting puberty a lot earlier, particularly girls. Girls hit puberty on average at the age of 10. So sexual development is something that comes earlier in our playgrounds and in our, you know, in our school life a lot earlier. Do we want this to be an ambush for them that becomes a source of intrigue, shame and mythology? Or do we want to make sure we are preparing them for these changes and transformations in a safe and caring way? So the birds and the bees talk, no. What, what would you suggest instead? <laughs> Well, I suppose we're looking for hundreds of difficult conversations over time and that we're looking for those those teachable moments that readily come. And it's never too young. No, I mean, very young children are, can be very interested in um, sex and sexuality in quite an intrusive way, in a way. How, you know, particularly young people young children who are toddlers can be very interested in you know why mummy's belly's getting big and how did the baby get in there um they are instinctively interested in their origins so questions like how did i get in your tummy where was i before i got in your tummy how did i get out all those ideas where do babies come from how come girls don't have a penis you know they they notice these differences And would you advise just being completely honest and frank and not making a big deal about it? Yeah, I think being factual, being calm, being aware that, you know, age five, they don't need chapter and verse to take their lead. They might ask about where babies come from. So explaining it in a factual way um, that avoids, you know, the coyness and embarrassment. And I think in a way it's about ownership of our bodies, And the ability to actually name the parts of your body without any sort of giggles or shame or embarrassment. That's a common question I get in the surgery. Eternal question. What do you call... I mean, a willy, that's sort of acceptable form for little boys. It's still a uh, terminology that isn't... But there's nothing like that for girls. You know, what do you call girls' genitalia? What, I mean, there are some pretty horrendous names being bandied around that are sort of infantile and some are even a bit sexual. And I think, oh, my goodness, you're asking your three-year-old to call it something, you know, probably can't even repeat on here. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, people are slightly at a loss of what to call. 
Well, I mean, I think at times we can look to some other countries and cultures for comparison. And certainly in the Netherlands, where there is a very, very low rate of sort of teenage pregnancy, actually sort of forays into sexual exploration happen later with a greater sense of information because there is more... um, open and forthright discussion about what it is and what's going on. When we sort of create these coy little names, inadvertently, we're, we're sort of giving a sense that those body parts are a little bit unnameable. The fact is, they exist. And the fact is that if they can point to and understand their own parts, they can take more confident ownership of their body without any sort of unconscious elements of shame, unspeakable elements that sort of encroach by that kind of evasion. So I certainly think from a very early age, it's a good idea to make sure that there is a sense of the body being there, you know, they are the boss of their body and that there are parts of their body that are private. And I think the NSPCC has a really good programme that's used in lots of schools. It talks about you know, the pants rule and, you know, what's in your pants is private. And, you know, we're not using sexualized language there, but we're talking about very sort of clearly defined zone that child needs to have a sense of autonomy, that it's private and that it's therefore them to be comfortable about. No, I think the, the boss of your own body is great. The only thing I would worry about is that if I mentioned that to my son, he'd be like, he'd use that as an excuse not to brush his teeth because he's the <laughs> boss of his own body. But I think having that right. zone is probably, you know, very, very helpful that it's not, you know, the whole body. Someone can hold your hand and someone can help you across the road and that's fine. It's more that there is a specific zone that is yours and and, and it's private. But just back to naming, because I do think a lot of parents want to know this. Do you, is there a terminology that's sort of commonly acceptable by, I don't know, NSPCC or by teachers? Or what do you advise people call their children's sort of genital organs? I mean, I think, you know, as a, as a, as a family, as a parenting couple or a parenting team, you need to make your decision about what you're most comfortable with. But I would say that the factual names should not be too far away. And um, very soon, I think that idea of, you know, what are the proper names should come into come, come into play, because otherwise we're living in a sort of uh, fantasy landscape, which is unclear. And what we want our children to understand is that there isn't anything shameful about their body, that there isn't anything to giggle about there, that actually everybody who is a woman has a vagina and every boy has a penis and those are those are the names for it and of course they're going to laugh like drains when they first hear those that language but do you know what that soon passes but they they still know the right term yeah and in those early days when they're just a bit young you know when you're you're potty training for example they're sort of one and a half and you say to to little boys you know to clean your willy in the bath and wipe your bottom when you're on the loo whereas with girls i mean what before the the age where using the term vagina is appropriate mm. i mean i used to say to my I, my little girl you know it's your front bottom i mean obviously anatomically that is totally incorrect you know it's it's but i is is there anything better than that do you think 
Um, I must say, I probably favour the same kind of terminology because we've got front, middle and back. And at least geographically, we are being very sort of accurate. Yeah, because um, if they've got a pain or an itch down there, they need to be able to describe to you where it's itching or hurting or it's sore. Exactly. And, and in a way, that's why being in a position where you can move from, at least that's a sort of factual, geographically correct Sort and of so order of the orifices. We're talking about the, the front bottom is your urethra, where you pee out of, your middle bottom is your vagina, and your back bottom is your anus. So I, I, would, I would say keeping it fairly neutral so it will map onto the, scientific, the more scientific language later. But what is the problem with a young child being able to refer to their vagina or their anus? What's the problem? Yeah. yeah, it's society that has created a taboo around these terms. It's us. But I suppose not naming them is a bit like, you know, Voldemort, he who must not be <laughs> named. You know, you're creating this whole, all these extraordinary feelings around a vagina um, that, that shouldn't really be there and aren't, aren't really helping anyone. Mm. Or even, you know, if we're talking about the front bottom zone, you know, their clitoris. Of course, you might talk about where we wee, the middle bum and where we poo, but essentially something that is very clearly descriptive about the geography of what they might be exploring or, as you say, where they might be feeling discomfort. And we want to be able to, you know, act on that. If it's a urinary infection or if they're feeling itchy in a certain area, we want to be able to understand it. So the clearer they can be to describe sort of symptoms or discomfort, the clearer we can be in engaging with that and understanding what it is that's bothering them. Yeah, and I think, you know, so obviously we've, we've talked about the terminology and the fact that, you know, we need to develop language whereby we can talk about all these things. Obviously, the next conversation is, is about sex, about that question that sort of traditionally we've all felt a bit uncomfortable with, uh, you know, a, a, as parents. And I think that it is a fundamental responsibility, you know, in terms of keeping our children healthy and safe, that dialogue. Because on the one hand, you know, keeping them safe is making sure that they're vaccinated. It's making sure they're eating properly and they, they know how to cross the road. But another key responsibility is talking to our children about sex, probably from a, from a younger age than we were as, as children, potentially. How, did you agree? Um, well, as we've already discussed, they, they are curious about that, mm. this from a very young age. And I think, you know, responding to their curiosity with interest yeah. and certainly not heaping shame on, on that or a sense of silliness, um, being responsive to their questions and their curiosity. And of not course, making up stories. No. No stalk stories. Well, when they're young, they are closer to us and we are much more aware of what's happening more closely. So that openness, you know, when, when they're a little bit older, when they're eight or nine, they start to get a little more self-conscious and inhibited. So we've got a really good window of time when we've got that curiosity in those early years to have, you know, really good conversations that allow us to start talking about values to do with sex, values to do with, you know, your body, and of course, making sure we're steering clear of those sort of toxic emotions of shame and guilt, so that, you know, really, we can be there to talk to them around eight, nine, ten about the more emotional dimensions of sex and sexuality. On average, various pieces of research have revealed that children start to encounter pornography online at around the age of 11. 
And one of the difficulties is, one of the questions for us as parents is, how do we make sure we instill values to do with the body and to do with sexuality before they're at that later stage where they're starting to separate from us? You know, 10 plus, and once they're into secondary school, they're going to be exploring high-octane areas of curiosity, their lives, their thinking, in a way that's a little bit more separate from us. So being open, responsive, being a calm resource for them to explore um, difficult questions um, right from an early age is going to set a template for later on, hopefully, for them to come back to us and ask us questions when they're hearing or potentially seeing stuff online that they're not prepared for. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss and those opportunities might arise for example for watching nature programs and um that sort of thing or, or seeing tv programs where there may be sort of a sexual encounter of some sort that they might come mm. across and then them asking questions or how else might might those conversations oh, start when they? i young? think there are loads of teachable moments out there if we can sort of really make sure we are ready so i mean you ask me how should we do this it's basically hundreds of little conversations and taking those opportunities when they come up there are loads of catchy songs that have quite a sexual vibe to them and sometimes you know we can look on in horror as our children and their little mates are you know gyrating to a song that actually in the adult world has a completely different meaning but for example when we hear them use terminology that like maybe refer- sexy or something exactly like that. Yeah. yeah yeah to talk about what do they think and again to to start with you know what do they think's going on when they're using that word where have they heard that word what do they think it means rather than sort of saying oh no you mustn't be singing about sex and sexy no sexy's bad that's not for you we need to get at it from another sort of uh, an, another way okay they're hearing this word they're they're interacting and using that word sometimes they might find the word sexy really hilarious because it does have a kind of funny sound to it and it provokes a reaction from parents totally yeah so if we can you know climb down from our inner self that might want to curl up and, and sort of either giggle and crease up if we can sort of come away from that and come to them with a bit of curiosity saying you know do you know what I heard you singing there it's really interesting hearing you sing that song I'm just wondering what you think this means you know this phrase and ask you know we'll get a lot of information from them when we ask them lots of open questions about what it what's 
what they're doing, what they're saying. And then we can start to scaffold their thinking a little bit and give them a sense of direction about boundaries that, you know, sexy is really something that's for grown-ups um, so that they understand from a non-guilt and non-shame point of view that um, being sexy, se- the idea of being sexy and sexual is something that is for later in life. They might hear the word, they might have an idea about what it is, but we can sort of broker and, and make sure they've got that in a more age-appropriate way. What age do you think children should all know the sort of bare facts about sort of sex and sort of just, you know, physiologically what happens in terms of creating a baby? Because obviously you're not going to tell that to an 18-month-old. You'll maybe talk about special hugs and eggs and all of that, but the sort of bare bones of actual sex, intercourse. What age should children have, be aware of that, would you say? Well, I mean, I think fairly early on, when they're starting to ask how babies are made, to th- you because know, because they don't always ask. No, they don't. They don't. You know, they say that psychologists shouldn't really have children, and I was busting for my child to ask me, and she she didn't for ages. You know, I couldn't wait to get started. Were you not tempted to sort of say, "Oh, so and so is having a baby? How exciting! Have you ever wondered how the baby got inside her tummy? Have you ever thought about sort of instigating that and sort of planting those questions in her mind?" Well, I mean, I suppose I think that it is. You know, five or six is a pretty good age to get started. Um, They will have, through observation, seen either within their own family or friends' family, babies coming and growing. And and certainly younger to talk about boundaries to do with touching, as we said before. Uh, They don't need the whole picture because obviously we think about having a talk about sex and we're freaked out about the topic because for us it's a big thing. But really, you know, they just want the bare bones, the outline. You know, when people want to make a baby, the man and the woman, they get very close together. Yeah, well, my son said, well, but how does the seed actually get inside the mummy? Right. And I sort of took a deep breath and I go, well, Ludo, his willy goes inside the mummy's front bottom and that's how it gets. And he went, oh, he wees inside her. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> yeah. very good. But it actually sort of cultivated, I, I did my best not to laugh, but it kind of cultivated that honesty and, and it, it made us actually have that really mm. important conversation. And what I thought was so interesting, because I'd always slightly been dreading this conversation, we were in the car driving. So again, you know, that sort of, we weren't looking uh. at each other other in the eyes and they were sitting in the back and we I was sort of trying to focus on driving at the same time trying to deliver vital information that wasn't going to (laughs) impair them sort of developmentally in any way and um and and I sort of delivered this sort of uh thunderbolt of of information and there was a sort of silence I thought okay I'll give this a minute or two and then the next question was so we're having cheese on toast for dinner yeah (laughs) and it just made me realize that because I hadn't turned it into a massive thing I didn't say you need to sit down. I need to have an important conversation with you. And do you remember that story I told you about the stork and how he delivered you? You know, that's actually totally rubbish. Um, <laughs> I'm now going to tell you the truth. You know, I can see how that's wrong on so many different levels. And actually kind of sort of playing it down and making it not such a big deal, I think 
probably made it a little bit easier for them to understand. And and then it meant, like you said, we could have more of that conversation. And, you know, the this is something that you're going to deliver installments over time. You don't need to talk about the pleasure dimensions, perhaps until a bit later. So what sort of age that? Because I was going to say it's quite quite easy to even younger than than four or five to, to talk to them about the bare bones of a well, seed I and mean, an egg. I think but I the would, pleasure is harder mm, to talk to them about. I think in the very early stages, I would add to the bare bones the ideas of, um, you know, this is ideally within a committed relationship. So that idea of, um, you know, when people want to make a baby, the mother and the father are very close. The man puts his penis in the woman's vagina. They both agree to do this. So we're getting in ideas about commitment and also consent right from an early age. But, you know, sperm, egg, pregnancy, the development of the baby in the womb, a little bit about labour, birth. Um, Children know all about that. (laughs) Uterus is a familiar term to them. (laughs) You know, factual stuff and some values that this is not for kids. It's something that's agreed in. It's a relationship that's committed, trusting and loving. From seven and eight, you've got kind of a gross factor that's kicking in because they're kind of aware, because they can see it in the children above them at school, that puberty is going to come on the horizon. So the gross factor really kicks in about that. You know, so gross. And it's totally natural for them to have a bit of an aversion. So in a way, age five and six and seven, there's less inhibition and there's more free... Uh, free play and having the conversation as you say having it dropping it are we having cheese on toast for supper um move on and come back to another teachable moment later you know and obviously we talked about for example young children and and masturbation and that idea of you know actually we've got to set limits and boundaries about that but in doing so we can do that by acknowledging that yes you know our bodies are beautiful and can be a source of pleasure it can be very comforting to do that but it's something that's very private so that you know we're doing those two things at the same at at the same time because that's again a huge variation in terms of on when children would start doing doing that so young children in their so toddler years and others not till they reach puberty so it's it is quite different and your experience as a parent might be very different um, depending on the child. Mm. I mean, I think there are going to be loads of times when you're watching things on telly and you, know, you think you're watching something that's safe to watch and then a cringy moment comes because there's a bit of a sexy scene that you weren't expecting. Uh, or there's a violent sexy scene that, you know, right. because often it is portrayed a bit more like that. Yeah, and inwardly you just want to die because, you know, you feel like, oh, damn, I should have vetted this before we started watching it. But, you know, life's not like that. Life will throw in those moments that for a parent you think... God, I'm embarrassed. Oh, I wish they hadn't seen that. But actually, it's something that can really be useful to, you know, just don't make that the elephant in the room. Be af- don't be afraid of coming back to that and saying, hmm, what did you think of that bit? What did you think was going on? What did you get out of that? And, uh, you know... And especially so with, with older children, I think with teenagers, mm. they will often 
close up more and more the older they get. Yeah. And it's very difficult as parents to get them to open up and have those conversations. Hmm. Um, would you have any advice well, on how to talk to teenagers? Some of the questions that will come up as they get a bit older are along the lines of how do you know when you're ready to have sex? Hmm. You know, how, how do you decide? Uh, and those are real golden moments to talk about going back to those fundamentals that you've already put in place with your probably 50 or 80 plus conversations that have gone before to talk about it being about ownership of your body, consent, being able to talk about what gives you pleasure and being able to be able to talk about with your partner sex and sexuality. If, if you feel embar- too embarrassed to talk about those things, guess what? You're not ready and your relationship isn't ready. You know, I mean, of course, for most of us as parents, you know, when is it right for them to have sex? probably about when they're 32. <laughs> you know, we, we don't like to think of that moment, but actually sort of talking to them about, well, you're, you're ready when you know that you can talk to your partner about what you want, what gives you pleasure. What you don't want. What you don't want, exactly. And those are quite hard places to go to, but they're quite good. You know, if they can't have those conversations with their partner then they're not ready and also if they can't have a conversation with you very easily about these points of sexuality where are they going to get their information from so I think we do have to parent up because where there's a gap in the market of information for them their natural curiosity will take over and what they'll be looking at particularly if the internet is their resource are things that are unfiltered unindustry regulated and let's face it the porn industry is not noted for modeling ideas about intimacy So it's more important than ever that we are talking about consent, mutuality, responsibility and pleasure. And I suppose one thing that might help, because obviously some of us are good communicators and we find it maybe easier than others to have that conversation about sex, you know, a sort of slightly awkward conversation. Some of us invariably will find it easier than others. And if you are someone that just thinks, I just, I know I'm not going to be the right person to have this with my child. And I know that I should be, but I, ultimately I want my child to benefit. I mean, I suppose you could potentially say to a sort of aunt or someone who's sort of close, but maybe one step removed from your parents to, to sort of make it slightly less cringy. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, Kiara, if you had the sex talk you know, with Iona when she's 14, she'd probably find it a lot easier to, to deal with than, than me. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And having a sort of spectrum of safe adults that your child can speak to is can only ever be a good thing. And cultivating that from a young age is, is important. I totally second that. But I would say, you know, a lot of parents, you know, shut their eyes and hope that it's being done elsewhere. That's what I hear from teenagers who I might work with closely in a coaching sense. And obviously, school will do a fairly good job. But we've all got to remember that it is in a group setting. And across a crowded room of 14-year-olds, how ready are you to ask a question that people might snigger at or you know, look down at you or judge you about? So really making sure that they have a safe space. And yeah, it might not be you as a parent. It might be a cool aunt or uncle. It might be a godparent. And even if they're pushing you away and saying, oh, no, gross, don't want to talk about this. It is fundamentally our job to bring them up to be emotionally safe, emotionally resilient, and also responsible about their bodies. 
One question I wanted to ask you, Emma, was um, you know, with younger children and toddlers, a lot of families and parents are quite open about um, having baths with their children when they're young or just being sort of naked in the bedroom or the child you know, walking in on, the, on you getting dressed. At what point does that become inappropriate or does it within a family environment from your perspective? Mm, well, I mean, again, in, in cultures where people in families are sort of naked together, there is less sort of body shame and also fewer, you know, low-age teenage pregnancies. Really? So, you know, I think I think we have to be sensitive to each other and observe, you know, obviously parading around in the nud, if it embarrasses our children and really mortifies them, I think it's worth having conversations about that, where their embarrassment is coming from, where you're coming from, and think about, okay, what's the best way forward? So sort of opening up the conversation, having the dialogue. Why is it important to you as a parent? You know, what are the values behind why in the family setting you want to not convey any body shame, but also sensitive to why, you know, particularly those who are in early adolescence who are going through a lot of body change can feel really inhibited. It's all about, you know, I suppose living together. If they're uncomfortable and ask us to put it away you know then we need to put some clothes on yeah yeah, we need to respond sensitively check in with them about what their feelings are ask them how comfortable they are with nakedness uh, uh, and you know check for sort of shame but in a way we want to be sure that they also see adult real normal undigitally enhanced and unsexualized bodies in a non-sexualized way yeah otherwise all of that becomes very much filtered through fear and fantasy and can have such a negative effect on the body image i think that's really useful so not there's not a specific age you have to see how your child is responding and actually the the more sort of relaxed nudity in the home in a family environment that that can happen the better and and you know we don't parent by numbers child one and two might be absolutely happy with that but child number three might have other experiences and other another take on it and we we need to make sure that as a as a as a family everyone's feeling comfortable safe and the values behind how we act are explored but it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if, if every time your child walks in on you and you don't have any clothes, you immediately rush to cover yourself up. They're learning from us, thinking, oh, no one must see me naked or I must be ashamed of my body. You know, so I can see actually how being a bit more relaxed, if that's the right thing for you as a family, can potentially build kind of confidence and, and also provoke more of those conversations we were just talking about. Absolutely. I think when young people see us worried about our bodies obsessing about areas of food diet, cutting out big food groups, for instance, they pick up ideas that can easily spiral out of control later on. So that idea of um, thinking about healthy approaches to our bodies, our bodies being strong, our bodies being celebrated, but being, you know, being very aware that... um, for girls and also for boys, there are so many pressures these days. You know, if you look at lots of men's magazines, uh, so many images that are emphasising a ripped physique and a similar unattainable standards. Um, so it is important that they see that we can be 
adult, we can have a little bit of a love handle or two, and we can be happy that actually it's it's about you know loving and caring for our bodies, accepting some of the imperfections, but really having a real and healthy view of who we are and modelling being comfortable in your skin because there's a hell of a lot of influence out there that makes us uncomfortable. I think that embrace of the imperfection is, is really powerful. I know that, you know, I, I'm often naked in front of my children and one of the things they often ask about is got, I've got a really ugly caesarean scar. It's just a badly healed scar. And, you know, I sort of say, oh, I think it's really ugly. But I also say to them, it's almost like my, my favourite part of my body because it's where you guys came out mm. of. And my daughter has a birthmark on her arm and we've always been really positive about that. And the other day she said, oh, it's my favourite part of my body. And I, I felt really pleased that I had managed to kind of foster positive around something that potentially you get teased about um, and, and I think that does stem from that kind of honesty in that our bodies aren't perfect but you know what we live we produce babies and that is something that's just mm. so wondrous something we should be so grateful for absolutely to be comfortable to understand and be comfortable in our own skin that's what we all really want for our children yeah if you can give that to your children you've kind of nailed it as a parent haven't you it's an important gift one one thing that a lot of parents have have sort of asked and requested that I ask you today is what if the sort of horror of all horrors your child walks in when when you're having an intimate moment with with your partner how do you tackle that I mean I, I do think that is the kind of living nightmare of, of so many parents um what, what, how and do children you that? probably as yes. well <laughs> <laughs> too right well it's difficult isn't it because a lot of us as parents will have had the door open for quite a lot of the time to listen out for our child in the night. And also so that if particularly, you know, it's quite natural for lots of children to have difficult dreams or nightmares so that they know they've got a safe space to go to. So actually shutting the door seems to be quite a boundary. On the other hand, boundaries are needed here and a sense of privacy to be respected for us and for them. So I suppose, you know, if this is one of our biggest fears, probably the biggest defence against that fear is to do something about that possibility and perhaps instituting a sort of knock first and wait for an answer policy that works for them and also for us when it's about going into the bedroom. It's about respecting their space and them respecting our space. So that idea of knock, knock first, wait for an answer. And you can practice this. It can be a bit of a game with your under fives, um, you know, and you can easily, obviously, as I say, shutting the door might feel like mm, this is a big statement. You know, I'm going to shut and lock the door now. Um, and of course, that would protect you against the possibility that your child might walk in at a very sensitive moment. But... Here, if we have that sort of sense of we knock first and then we come in where bedrooms are concerned. If the door is shut. If the door is shut, or we can have it ajar and say, knock first. Because I think a lot of parents might might find it difficult to say, you always have to knock first when you come into my bedroom because you know it's nice to have a, a space in the house, generally where children can can go wherever they like but mm. but I suppose if it's a jar or if it's closed then to have the rule of knocking first could yeah. work and thinking about this is this is our space 
and this is your space, and we can go in and out of each other's space. But it, you know, it starts to educate a little bit around boundaries and privacy. And of course, in later life, when your teenager is going to want to slam the door at you, having ideas about respect for privacy as something that's part of your your lived, shared family values is is quite a good thing. But of course, you know having a script ready for when they do knock and if that is at a bad moment or if they don't knock yeah. <laughs> yeah. or if you've forgotten to shut the door and suddenly you sort of look up and there's a little face yeah of surprise so what yeah. do you say then hey hey sweetie <laughs> just a minute can you step outside and wait a moment you know hey just just a minute can you pop outside and wait um and to explain we were having some private time together and if they push, if they do push what was happening, you know, to tell them we were making love and this is a really private thing. And then you're probably on your highway to having some other conversations that link in with those 200 different conversations that you're going to have along their development. But to observe, are they distressed? Are they uncomfortable? You know, they don't want to be confronted with us as sexual beings any more than, you know, we want to see them in that light. So really keeping an eye on them if it has happened and enable repair, having conversations to avoid shame and blame responses. You know, it happened, it's unfortunate, but it did happen and make sure that you take that sort of teachable moment and to check any discomfort or uh, worry that they might have going forward. Oh, that's that's really uh, sort of reassuring. I think that um, you sort of worry as parents, don't you, that they'll be sort of emotionally, you know, scarred by by an experience like that. But uh, but to have that kind of conversation, I suppose, is is really important. Well, I think your image of you know Voldemort moments <laughs> is a really powerful one. Don't let that become the Voldemort moment. Otherwise, what will they think? Their fears and fantasies about what happened there will go unchecked. What will they interpret about? what maybe they saw or that that was somehow something an unsayable wrong that they did in going in your room so um yeah you've got to name it to tame it and discuss it um well I have to admit um you know this is it's so interesting having this chat about sort of talking about sex and the importance of it my views on this have changed so much obviously since becoming a parent I remember so well when uh, I was pregnant with with my eldest and my husband ended up getting a drunken tattoo one night and I was so angry with him I was like right how am I going to punish you and I sort of said to him right you're going to have to do the sex talk with the children when they're older and he sort of shuddered and that was very much you know perceived as the ultimate punishment and Mm. now you know I've got children and I you know can communicate with them and realise the importance of communicating with them. I realise it's something that's, you know, actually really important to have, really important to have from an early stage. And you have a responsibility as a parent to make sure that it is sort of lucid and clear to protect them. Equally, I think sometimes a tag team approach is really important, particularly around puberty when there's self-consciousness about the bodily changes. You know, our children are likely to want someone who's the same gender to talk about some of those bodily changes. So there are times when mum might be a great resource and times when dad will be a great resource as well. And if mum or dad isn't around, then having another safe adult. Indeed. You know, or there isn't, you know, if yeah. you're in a single parent household, yeah. then having someone else of the opposite of the 
the gender that's needed to have those conversations. Yeah, having having a sort of expanded parenting team mm. who can look out for and have safe conversations and be an available resource is hugely powerful. And presumably just making sure that you're all coming from, you know, singing from the same hymn book, that you're yeah. all using sort of similar vocabulary and, you know, the, the sort of language around it and the honesty around it is, is constant among all those who are sort of giving yeah. information. Emma, this has been hugely helpful. Thank you so much for coming here today. Emma runs parent and teacher workshops, which, as you can tell from today's podcast, are very straight-talking, incredibly useful, and very often humorous. For more information on the courses she runs, please do have a look at her website. It's emmagledhill.com. That's G-L-E-A-D-H-I-L-L. Thank you for downloading The Parenthood. We do hope you found this episode illuminating and helpful. Parenting can feel like a real minefield at times, and all of us parents spend a lot of time wondering whether or not we've got it right. But informed conversation helps, and this is why we're trying to tackle as many issues as we can think of. So please subscribe to The Parenthood and encourage your friends to do the same. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we can record. And do follow us from Instagram. Not only is our feed full of interesting and funny stuff, but you can also let us know what you'd like to record next. So thank you for listening, and from both Kiara and I, goodbye. Goodbye.